All right, we're back to the podcast, Garden Thoughts. Uh, this is going to be a non-negotiable episode. I'm here with Matt Ahrens. He's all about hydration, nutrition, and is you know running in his own lane right now. Uh, again, just to give a brief uh, context of what this is with the non-negotiables, we got our breath, your sleep, hydration, nutrition, movement, exercise, and connections, relationships. This one's specifically dedicated to the hydration, nutrition piece. Um, Matt, I'd love to have you give some context, firstly, just for the listeners and myself, uh, who you are, what you're about, um, kind of what you're doing right now and what you're curious about um, in the sense of hydration nutrition. Yeah, Colby, I mean, it's nice to, we kind of reconnected um, through some of the Embrace North, Built a Breathe events. Um, we kind of, I mean, I think our, our mutual connection is Harvey Martin um, with a lot of the breath work and um so for everyone out there, my name is Matt Ahrens. I run a organic market garden called Spring Lake Farm down in Prior Lake. I also do a lot of nutrition coaching, breath coaching, um, and just kind of cold exposure training in all facets of life. And I think a lot of what I guess the main intersection here is the fact that our food dictates so much of our mental, emotional, and physical states. And so when we have the ability to actually source from local farms and then work with nutrition coaches, nutrition experts, and whatever field, I mean, there's so much benefit to that. So I'm right now in this process of building these two out because I think there's this, there's this idea that a farm is a farm that produces food. Then there's this idea that there's this consumer. And then there's another idea that we have um, nutrition experts that help us navigate the world of food when at the end of the day, the farm used to be the lifeblood of so many different communities, whether it was just the vegetables that we raised or all the medicinal herbs and things like that, that we used from foraging from our natural landscapes, things like that. So my farm is really, it's, it's meant to be more than just a farm producing vegetables. It's actually meant to be an education source, um, like we're putting together a bunch of guides on how to actually source from local farms, recipes on how to use seasonal vegetables. Um, so there's a lot that we're working on just so that consumers become much better educated around um, how to actually eat healthy because it is complicated now, unfortunately. So, mm. yeah, yeah, I love that. Um, I think the education piece, I didn't, I actually didn't know that. I think that's huge. Uh, because like we were just saying before this was rolling, like, you know, there, I feel I'll just speak personally, there's this mass amount of information, whether it be social media, et cetera. That's like, you know, one thing says you should only be eating this or this type of diet. You should stay away from these things. Um, and it's, it's like a lot of contradictory that happens. And it's like, now you're like in this analysis paralysis, you're confused. And now it's like, I don't know what to do. Maybe, you know, you're wasting money on different things that really is, is not the root source of, you know, the hydration or nutrition piece. Um, how, do, how do we like navigate? Like, how do you like, um, through the things that you've been experienced too, like, what would you say to someone that like we should, um, consume and what are some of the things um, that we like maybe should stay away from, you know, we, we can start again. I know this is like so many different things yeah. that you could go about in so many different avenues, but kind of from like the, the broad sense, and then we can kind of tailor it and navigate through there. Yeah. So, I mean, if, like you're an athlete, I was an athlete, like I played college football on at Princeton. Um, I mean, there was this, there's this common adage when I was going through sports of, this term called carb loading, right? A lot of us are familiar with carb loading. A lot of us are familiar with now all these different TikTok, Instagram, Facebook accounts that are saying, oh, if you're an athlete, eat this, or if you're doing this, eat that. Like CrossFit has its own kind of quote unquote community diet that a lot of them follow. Um, and we've gotten into this world where there's keto, pagan, vegetarian, pescatarian, vegan, um, just all these different things. And for somebody to go about and figure out like, okay, well, I'm not feeling good or I want to optimize my nutrition. Um, and you start searching, it's like complete overwhelm, this overwhelming feeling of like, where do I even begin? Um, and I think like from my background, right? Like I run a farm, like my, like the, the, 
pinnacle of eating healthy, right, is sourcing strictly from a local farmer. But for a lot of people, that isn't either possible, whether it's because of distance to a farm, access to a farm, um, financial reasons. I mean, there's a lot of things that play into your ability to actually access fresh local food, right? Um, but I think like if we can boil it down to a few things um, for somebody to start off with, there's some pretty simple ones that you can do. Um, and a lot of it involves how big ag and big food came into our food system of what we know as today. So if you think about all the processed foods that we eat, fast foods that we eat, well, a lot of them are super high in inflammatory oils. So like if you're an athlete, the last thing you want is inflammation. Yeah. And there's really two categories of things that we know that cause an immense amount of inflammation through your diet, that being seed oils. So things like sunflower oil, safflower oil, soybean oil, peanut oil, canola oil, vegetable oil. I mean, if you look at any bag of chips, if you look at any, um, even like those keto friendly snacks, I mean, there's just so much stuff where they're fried in sunflower oil or one of the seed oils. And the seed oils, unfortunately, have a very high ratio of omega-6 to omega-3 um, fatty acids with omega-6 being pro-inflammatory, omega-3 being anti-inflammatory. Um, mm. And the unfortunate reality is when you go through the grocery store and actually start looking at ingredients, you really realize how much these seed oils has, have pretty much penetrated everything we eat outside of our whole foods, right? Like you could even have dried cranberries that are fried or that are kind of soaked in um, sunflower oil. You could have peanuts that, like if you were to look at a bag of planters peanuts, you're gonna have sunflower oil, peanut oil. Like these things are fried in these oils because they're actually known to make us crave these things more. So like those seed oils mm -hmm. are first place to start of like looking at your food source and going, okay, well, can I substitute what I'm currently eating with something that doesn't have this? Um, like a good example would be an, e an easy one to start off with would be something like salad dressings. So Primal Kitchen, um, they do a lot with olive oil and avocado oil, which is much friendly for friendlier from a ratio perspective for those um, oils um, or for the fatty acids. Whereas um, you just go pick up a random, say, Neiman's, ranch dressing and it's going to have super pro-inflammatory oils so like mm. that is something that you can control and it's something that will one boost your performance because it's going to allow your gut to actually process food rather than just trying to process fat um it's going to lower inflammation it's going to help with recovery if you can avoid these oils um and then the second one is our sugar consumption right so if you look at the foods we eat, I mean, we're eating, I think on average, 120% more or something like that of sugar per year than what our grandparents were eating. Um, and we know that sugar has a pro-inflammatory response when we eat it. So if we're just eating things that have sugar added to them all the time, we're going to have inflammation build up in our body. And so for athletes, that inflammation is obviously killer and that sugar drives a lot of that inflammation. Um, and if you start to look, one of the nice things that they did with the nutritional facts on the back is mm -hmm. they made it now so that companies have to um, show if they added like the total amount of added sugar. And that's a good indicator of figuring out how much sugar was added. And like granola is one of the worst culprits for this where you could have like a honey cluster granola and then they add 10 to 20 um, grams of sugar by adding things like cane sugar and things like that, that stick to these honey clusters. So like mm. those two things, I think from the perspective of anyone like on their health journey, whether you're an athlete or a non-athlete, doing some sort of personal audit, some sort of kitchen audit to look through what's in your cupboard do the brands that I'm buying have these things in them and like to what amount and are there other brands that I can then substitute so that I'm not just buying all these inflammatory um, foods. So 
but it, it takes mm. time, right? It takes, like, I have a lot of people that I train and coach and I go like, if you're going to buy a cub, like they're, they might have different brands than say at a Kowalski's or a whole foods. And you just have to know and understand which brands are going to be your best friend. And that might take going on a Sunday, just taking an extra hour and walking through the grocery store and figuring out what that is. But then when you know those brands, it's super easy and you know, okay, when I run out of this, I'm only buying that. Rather mm. than having 10,000 choices, you're like, okay, I know exactly which brand I'm gonna buy. I'm gonna go and pick that one up and it's right there. You eliminate that choice too, which also helps. Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting because uh, just a few uh, weeks ago, I was uh, going through um, like all the cabinets fridge freezer and was really like looking into this because it's just one of those things that like once you become aware of it it's like hard to not be aware of it you know once you know it you can't unknow it um and it's there's so like 85 percent of the stuff in all the cabinets and you know the fridge like had either that um that oil to it uh, those different oils or there's like that again with that sugar that excess sugar and all these and that's also um, I was looking, I don't know if you know anything about where it says like fortified or, um, like fortified whole wheat or those, um, there's another word for it. Um, I can't Enriched. think of it right now. Enriched. That's yeah. right. Um, and apparently that also is like an, um, another thing that's like, you, you know, that's like in everything, but you should try to avoid it as well. Is that, is yeah. that right? So right so if we think about and it's it's most prominent with like wheat products so breads um things like that where what they end up doing is what they mean by enriched or fortified is when this grain so say a wheat grain goes through a processing facility um they're stripping the whole they're getting rid of some of the things so that they can process it into what they want well, what they do is they end up stripping that entire grain of the fiber and different vitamins and nutrients and so that they have to then go back and add those things in later. Well, the problem is, is I mean, one of the benefits to that, right, is it increases shelf life. Um, we put them in plastic bags. So any of your breads that you buy in the grocery store that are in plastic bags, like this is what's happening to them. Um, so they're ultra processed um, wheat grains is essentially what they are. Um, well, your body can't digest a lot of that as well. Whereas if you're eating things like sourdough, seed bread, things like that, that haven't been stripped and then refortified back in, um, you're going to get a lot better, um, just nutritional absorption, um, for your body. Like there's a reason why sourdough bread is meant to rise. It's meant to take longer like we mm -hmm. want that it's almost like fermented vegetables like if you were eating um kimchi or sauerkraut like you're building up a lot of beneficial things that your body's going to use to build up healthy gut bacteria whereas like all these fortified things they're just going to go straight in and straight out of your body without really ever spending time for you to digest them they're practically a waste of money they're typically just a feeder for whatever else you want to put on it um, mm. and so like, we typically recommend, like, if you can buy fresh baked bread at a grocery store or a local baker bakery, that's going to be a much better option than buying these things like wonder bread or bran or, um, oat bran, just because that bread isn't going to have stuff that is really that good for you from a nutritional perspective. Um, like mm -hmm. your body's actual ability to absorb it. Like, yes, the new the nutrition facts might say like all of these things, but again, it all comes down to, can my body actually absorb all of this? And is it in a state where my digestion is slowed down so that I can absorb this rather than it coming in to out? Mm. So it's, there's a difference there between like what you're eating, but then also of like, what are you pulling from that nutrition? Like, what am I holding right. on to? What am I digesting through that? Okay. Right. Um, yeah, that, that makes sense. Cause here, here's my, a few, like probably like a year and a half ago, um, is really when I like kind of just re had the realization that like hydrate, like what you put in your body, like your nutrition is like, like very important. Cause I've, it's always been kind of the mindset of like, okay, well I'm hungry. So I need to eat, 
Okay, and so I need to fulfill my hunger. Okay, and I, obviously through the athletics, okay, you need to replenish your body through that type of sense. But of like becoming more aware of it and having the understanding of like if your body was a car, if it was a red Ferrari, like you would put the best premium gas into that because um, that's what's going to fuel it. So like if and it's the, the same concept, like if I want to be elite or you want to feel good, um, there's this whole thing and it's like with how what you eat like literally changes how you feel and how you think right with that like your gut is your second brain do you know any can you kind of speak upon that of how that kind of whole system works yeah so it it's really tied into how our physiology connects to our psychology right so our psychology being a lot of like how we perceive the world um our brain like our mood, how we feel, um, really our perceptions of our reality, right, is our psychology. And so our psychology is really also playing off of our physiology because our physiology is what's driving um, the production of energy. It's what's driving the absorption. It's what's driving our true mood and energy. Um, and our brain is really a response to what's happening internally. So when you see somebody who's dealing with chronic fatigue, depression, anxiety, um, different things like that, and we go, okay, well, that's just a psychology problem. Well, that's a very limited approach to addressing a whole issue, right? Like we've, in today's modern medicine, we've kind of taken this approach where we're gonna separate all of these different parts of the human body and then not think about them holistically. Now that's starting to change because of the research that's coming out specifically specifically around our gut um, and how it interacts with our body. So like if you're having skin rashes and you're gonna be prescribed a topical steroid, well, that topical steroid isn't actually addressing the gut issues that are most likely causing the skin issues. Um, mm. Our skin is our first barrier, right? And when you start to have skin rashes, skin issues, that typically is a sign that it's irritated. And most of the time it's actually coming internally being our gut. Um, if we're having anxiety and depression, there's, I mean, there's multiple things that could be going on, right? But there's a few things that we can control. One of them being that I know you're gonna have other guests on the podcast with, but things like um, breath control. So how well you can control your breathing in different mental emotional states can dictate how you control anxiety and things like that, right? So the slower you breathe, the better off you're gonna be. Breathing through your nose produces more nitric oxide, more oxygen throughout your body. Um, just so many different benefits there. But now when we look at our gut, well, 95% of all serotonin is manufactured in our gut. 50% of dopamine is manufactured in our gut. Wow. Where, right. And so one of the problems now that we have in modern society is when we think about depression and anxiety, we typically treat that with an anti-anxiety medication or an antidepressant that works on serotonin receptors in the brain. So we're only targeting 5% of all serotonin in our body by going after those serotonin receptors in our brain. Whereas if you look, if you, if you were to just sit down for a day and pay attention to what you ate and how you felt afterwards, you'd actually start to be able to notice a significant um, either increase or decrease in mood, energy. Um, you could become more irritable based on the foods you eat. Um, you could become super excited, followed by a super low depressive state, um, simply by the foods you're eating because of how it interacts with our serotonin and dopamine receptors. Now, the problem is, is for most of us, we are going through these peaks to valleys all day long. So these highs to lows, highs to lows. Um, like when I talk with corporate clients or when I talk with my clients, what you typically see is people needing coffee. They need to have their morning coffee. They need to have their afternoon coffee. They don't feel rested. They start to get irritable later in the day, fatigued later in the day. Well, guess what? Most of us eat a carb sugar heavy breakfast which typically will include some sort of caffeinated drink. And a lot of times it's Starbucks, which is loaded with 50 to 70 grams of sugar. Um, so we're starting our, our day off on a high, right? So sugar is a high. Mm. Then all of a sudden we come crashing down right after that, 
lunch comes, we eat a typical American diet, which is high in fats, sugar, and inflammatory oils. So we get another high to another low. And then by the time we hit the end of the day, our body's been through 10 hours of chronic stress because it's out of homeostasis the entire morning and afternoon. Um, and that's unfortunately due to the foods that we eat, what are in our foods, the order in which we eat foods, and the fact that most of our food is carbohydrate heavy, right? Like you think about the American food pyramid and carbohydrate. Yeah, why is it set up like that? Um, government policy. Um, <laughs> I can kind of go into why that is. Um, yeah. After, but just right. after kind of this note on like what we eat, how we eat, the order in which we eat all impacts our mood mm -hmm. and our body's ability to handle stress. So like if your body is already in a chronic stress state simply by the food and drinks that you're having, how are you going to handle stress throughout your day um, if it's compounding, right? Most people can only handle a certain amount of stress until they break. Um, now think about that. We add that five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and with these bodies that are now going through so much stress that they can't actually handle anything anymore, and they start to break down. Um, and food is one of those primary things that leads to a lot of those issues. Um, mm. So. Yeah, that's, uh, it's this weird thing too. Like, do you, uh, would you recommend then, I mean, again, I, I guess I kind of look through the lens of trying to optimize and I guess the athlete side of things, but I know there's also like people that just want to feel good and live, you know, free and cleanly, um, of like times of day. Like what if like, if I wanted to feel great during a day, if I wanted to have like the best day, um, hydration, nutrition wise, um, I've heard different things where it's like, you know, you should eat like smaller meals, like every three hours, like you should do, um, just have like these different, you know, what, how would you, how would you go about that? Or how would you navigate that landscape? So I think that's one question where like a lot of people will try to fit like a general idea into, um, so many different situations of what could happen. Right. So if I'm an athlete who's in season where my goal is weight maintenance, um, and recovery, right? Like I care so much about recovery during season because I mean, that's how I make it through a season, right? Whereas if I'm say a mom of four, my goal is to make it so that I'm not fatigued by the time my kids come home and we've got 10 million things to do at the house, right? Like from four to 9 PM, like how can I be sane in that same environment? Um, mm -hmm. And I think there's a few things. One, it's very personal. So some people digest better some people are, um, they don't need as many calories. Like it all depends on your activity level. Um, it depends on just so many other environmental factors, but there's a few things that we know. First being eating late at night typically impacts your sleep. So if you're gonna eat right before bed, that's gonna directly your impact your quality of sleep. You might sleep for a long time, but we're talking about your quality of sleep. So if you're actively digesting while you're sleeping, you're not actually recovering. Um, so the recommendation is anywhere to stop eating roughly two to three hours before you go to sleep. Um, and then there's this whole thing around intermittent fasting, right? Like, right. That, oh, I was going to ask fast. about that. Yeah. So I need to fast for 16 hours. Okay. Well, fasting is so dependent on where you are at as an athlete or as a person, right? Like if I'm like in my current day right now in the off season from farm, from the farming life, like during the farm season, I'm walking 30, 40,000 steps a day. Like I'm active all day. I am burning calorie after calorie after calorie. In the off season, I'm doing a lot more maintenance. I'm focusing on my body. I'm focusing on just being healthy. I don't have to eat as much. Um, and for me, like, for me to focus and concentrate and get things done, I will typically fast in the morning and then eat when I'm hungry. Um, whereas like, say you're an athlete and you're just going to go and work balls to the wall for six days a week and then think you're going to fast for 18 hours. 
and then just try to eat all of your calories in that two hour, three hour span, well, your body's not gonna absorb all of those nutrients. So we have to figure out like what that optimal schedule is for you um, based on your daily demands. Like mine in the farm season is very different than mine in the off season. So why would I apply what I'm doing in the off season to what I'm doing during the season? Um, and I think that's where we start to get that mix up of like, oh, like this is the best way for me in every facet of my life. Well, that could change um, simply depending on your energy needs um, and the demands that you're going through in life. Um, but we typically know that like if you're going to eat a eat a meal, um, your body's going to spend energy digesting that meal. Like we know that to be the case. Now the quality of food of what you eat, like say you're going to go in and have a meeting um, where you're presenting or a baseball game and you're just going to eat like a high carb diet right before a high carb meal right before, well, you're going to get a spike. And for that meeting, if you're presenting for 30 minutes, well, that might be fine. But if you're having to perform over three, four hours for baseball, you're going to have a lull in your performance midway through because you just had this massive spike to now a lower um, to just kind of that downward spiral because your energy is now being depleted based on the food. Mm. Whereas like if we're eating properly, we're maintaining this so our energy levels maintain. Um, so I think that's really the big one is it's more of like, what are my demands for my day? What does my day look like? Um, certain days might be more exercise heavy than others. Um, so we have to put a lot of that into perspective before we just go, Oh, this diet's best for me. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I think there is a lot of, again, more of that like individualistic, um, approach or understanding that like, again, what you, you were saying, like how I, you know, consume and digest is probably different than, you know, everybody else. And likewise back, um, is there, um, on the sense of like what we can consume or what we should consume, um, how would you kind of talk about that? Of uh, what are the, what are the things that like, Hey, we absolutely need this. Um, it, we really, it'd be awesome if we can digest or consume this. Um, and different other like superfoods, good foods, um, times a day, eat them, et cetera. I mean, I think, so I think we get caught up in this world of superfoods, which is hilarious to me because like we have superfoods growing in our own backyard in Minnesota. Um, like this whole crave of like acai berries that we have to import from Brazil because there's some superfood, right? Well, we have native blueberries in Minnesota. We have um, different foods in Minnesota that are superfoods. Um, and it varies by state, right? And so I think when you're talking about maximizing nutritional density of food, the idea is that you want to source as local as possible. You want to source from a farm that is practicing regenerative agriculture, meaning um, taking care of the soil, investing in the soil, um, because like that is what's driving the nutritional density of food. Whereas if I'm gonna go buy food from the grocery store, well, those carrots or something might be sitting on the grocery store shelf. Like they might've been harvested two or nine months prior to you eating them. Um, and that's fine, but we also have to know like, okay, well, what are my seasons of the vegetables? When are they? And when can I get the most nutrient dense food possible? Um, and I think that's kind of what we've gotten away from is we've got such a globalized agricultural system um, that it doesn't allow for um, that seasonality, which is where you get the rich uh, nutrient dense foods. Like broccoli is a perfect example where the nutritional density of broccoli has decreased about 40%. Um, and that is directly related to soil health. So, if you think about how humans and animals developed over time, um, it's really that we grew symbiotically with our relationship with plants, soil, microbes in the soil. Like there's a lot of microbes in the soil that also benefit the microbial activity in our gut. Um, and what's happened over time is we have completely depleted our soil of a lot of these beneficial microbes. Um, so like if you think about 
now our use, our heavy use of insecticides, pesticides, synthetic fertilizers, a lot of that ends up killing off um, the beneficial microbes, which those might, that microbial activity is what helps plants uptake nutrients. Um, and if we get rid of that, well, that's essentially like putting an antibiotic in a human being where the antibiotic just destroys not only the bad bacteria, but also the good bacteria in your gut. Um, mm. Like it kills everything. Like there's a time and a place for antibiotics, right? Like we need them for a lot of different things. We wouldn't be able to have certain surgeries without them. The problem is, is our use of them has become the way that we also similarly use pesticides and synthetic fertilizers in our soil being that we've just killed everything off. And so we're seeing a complete decline in nutritional density of a lot of foods. And so we're having to eat more and more and more, which means more calories in, which means we have to burn more calories to get that out. Um, and then when you compound that with just the crappy diets that most of us typically have, well, you're never really ever burning off all of that. Um, like I've had people who will work out five days a week, an hour to an hour and a half a day, like high intense activity and lose like 10 pounds. And you'll have people who will change their diet very slightly and get rid of pop chips and candy and they'll lose 70 pounds um, simply because you're taking away things that actually add to inflammation and weight gain. Whereas like you have to spend so much time actually burning off one brownie by exercising. Um, and why that matters is because for us to get the nutrients that we need, we have to eat more and more and more. And most of us don't even eat that good of diets. So think about the nutritional density of what we're getting anyways. Um, and so a lot of it comes back to our soil health, the way and the ability for you to actually access farms that are farming in that way, which will help you feel better. Um, I think the other big thing that we've noticed is, and this is something that is very obvious now that I've gotten into the, this work is that young kids think food just magically appears in a grocery store. So we have no connection to where or how food is grown. I mean, before I started this, I didn't know what a broccoli plant looked like, like how it, how it grew and things like that. I had no connection to that. Um, and what we know over research is that if you have a connection to a thing, you are more likely to adopt that item or thing um, just because of your relationship with that. Well, kids and people these days don't have a relationship to a farm or a farmer. And so we rely on companies to tell us what we should eat. We rely on influencers to tell us what we should eat, um, rather than taking a lot of that into our own hands, doing the hard research, and then starting to ask the hard questions of like, okay, is this actually going to be beneficial for me? Um, and I think that's where companies wanted to go. Like they wanted to go to a point where you don't have to think like your cart is already auto populated when you shop at whole foods because whole foods knows what you're going to buy and it's going to recommend what you should buy based on your tendencies. And so you kind of get into these cycles of like, Oh, I'm going to eat just a ton of nut butters. I'm going to eat this or that, or these frozen meals. Like all of that is now algorithm driven, which is wild that, somebody is subconsciously controlling our food decisions. Yeah, that, that is wild. Um, that's pretty crazy to think about because it's, it's like we're eating more, but we're not getting the same amount of nutrients right. through that. Um, that's pretty interesting. Can we kind of talk about, and you, I think you're already navigating towards that, or maybe you have um, already dove into it, but that sense of like, why, if, why is the structure set up like this? Like why, if, if we know, if there's an understanding why like oils and sugars and all these processed different things, fortified and rich, I mean, we've talked about the benefits and drawbacks of the fortified situation, but this broad sense of like, okay, if like, if we want to be healthy, like, why is this always being pushed? And I, I think the first maybe gut answer a reaction to that is like they want to maybe have like a sense of control or they want to have you know the meaning like this outside force or whatever you want to call it but like wouldn't it if you want to 
just look at it purely and maybe this is a naive kind of thought or statement but like like if we want to be healthy like get to the root problem that's a whole sense of like the non-negotiables like all of these are within your control you can control your breath your sleep hydration nutrition how much you move the types of conversations relationships you have and like why would we not want to ultimately live at like our, our peak and then trying to stay there, like in hydration and nutrition specifically, like this is such a fundamental key point that like we should have control over and like in the sense of optimizing and wanting to be good, wanting to feel good. Like, why is it not, maybe, maybe, I don't know. Why does it seem like it's all these other like crap stuff kind of thrown at us? Well, so when you walk, I mean, when you walk around the grocery store, I mean, think about how many choices you have, right? Like, there's a point where so many choices leads us to default to our habits. So agriculture in the United States, really, the way that we think about industrial agriculture today really started post-World War II. So post-World War II, Cold War was going on, right? Well, there's this push by the US government along with other government institutions to essentially say that we could produce food year round whenever we wanted um, and it's gonna be readily accessible to our citizens at grocery stores. Like grocery stores became a common thing after World War II. Now, during the Cold War, there was a lot of uh research and development dollars that went to poultry production so that we could have chickens year-round like chickens used to be more of a seasonal type thing um prior to world war ii world war one um like you have to raise a chicken over a period of time like we weren't just stuffing them with hormones growth hormones um feed things like that where we pump them out in a short amount of time like what we're doing now um you also had the increase in the production of commodity crops. So things like wheat, corn, soy kind of came into the 90s. Um, but what you started to see is that with the increase in the production and yields of these commodity crops, well, the government was sitting on a bunch of reserves of these and they have to get rid of them. Um, it was profitable for the U.S. government to push this um, because of the demand. Like we're ex we're still technically an net exporter of agricultural products, but it's primarily commodity crops, being your corn, soy, wheat, um, grains, things like that. Well, in the '50s, we had these large reserves of these ex excess commodity crops, and so the U.S. food pyramid was born, saying that like, oh, we should be eating more grains than anything else um well this was kind of the mm. first time i mean historically if you think about how humans ate prior to the industrial revolution i mean a lot of it was game food a lot of it was foraging i mean people grew their own gardens um and you had wheat staples like bread and thing was bread and stuff was around but not to the scale that we were eating it post-world war ii like it started to become an everything well with all this research money, corn, the corn industry just kind of exploded. So not only did they increase the amount of acre acreage of corn grown, they also tripled yields at the same time. And we're like, oh crap, what do we do about this? Well, that became the birth of high fructose corn syrup and corn syrup, um, which we know are very detrimental to our gut health. Um, following that, we had the rise of ethanol um, to use the corn, right? So rather than using 100% um, petroleum, we would use a biofuel. So now you've got 10 or 15% ethanol in a lot of your fuels, um, quote unquote, more sustainable and eco-friendly. Um, that's a hard question to answer, but I think at the end of the day, what we saw was that government policy started driving our food behaviors. Um, and what companies noticed is if you, is that fat became a bad thing in the fifties and sixties. Like if you go back and look at commercials, fat was a bad thing. So what did we do? We removed fat from everything and we added sugar into everything. 
So we removed healthy fats, which we know are good for the human body, and we added in sugars and things like that to make stuff taste good again. Um, so now you started having an entire generation of people in the 50s and 60s growing up on these highly processed foods um, that started dictating their daily habits. Like if you think about your food choices today, most of them are actually driven by your 18 years of living with your parents. Um, a lot of your food choices are driven by your parents. So whatever your parents were pushing down onto you is typically what your food habits became. So these companies then large processed foods. I mean, you think about Heinz ketchup. Well, Heinz ketchup, most Heinz ketchup has high fructose corn syrup in it. Um, that is a highly addictive substance that we know leads to excessive weight gain. It also leads to chronic gut issues um, when consumed consistently over time. Well, guess what? It's in every single household. It's in Sweet Baby Ray's. And so what we did is we essentially got an entire generation of people addicted to these crap products, which then started becoming passed down from generation to generation to generation. Now, the big issue of what we're seeing now is gut health, right? Like there's a lot of conversations around gut health, how that impacts, and we touched on it earlier in the podcast, but what is what has been shown is that the gut um, makeup of a mother gets passed down to the child um, through birth, right? Like it gets passed down. Um, there's a very strong symbiotic relationship. Well, over time, we have started degrading that gut health. And so we're starting to see babies that are already starting off on a poor front because of their gut health, um, simply because of the destruction of our gut microbiota from all of these processed foods that started kind of right around World War II. Um, so we're seeing a rise in ADHD, we're seeing a rise in autism, we're seeing a rise in all these behavioral issues. And a lot of that is stemming from the environments in which these babies are born in um, and the foods in which they're eating, especially when they're young. Like if you ask any mom who has a child in the NICU, um, these babies are being fed supplements that have high fructose corn syrup in them um, and being pushed and lobbied for those things to be pushed into the food system. Um, and so we're already kind of starting off on the wrong foot. And a lot of that was driven by government policy. And now how do we reverse that when there's so much money in the food system, when food honestly should be a very low margin product because we have to eat it every day. Whereas now we have companies who are trying to create high margin products um, because they use cheap crap ingredients and then mark it up. Yeah, that's uh, that's kind of blowing my mind a little. I didn't under I didn't realize the level um, or the depth to that of understanding, like the the ripple effects essentially of like what we're doing now, the level of it, and now the the, the basically the consequences um, that come along with it. Um, I want to kind of tap into. So, I'm a I'm a college athlete, and you know, I. Now having this knowledge that you share and having these different resources and the education part of it, how do I go about it? Also, is there a way I can do it uh, with a friendly budget? And like, what what should I be looking? Obviously, the the big pieces of it, you know, stay away from these different oils and sugars. Is there a sense of like this? Not the conveniency of it, right? Because um, again, like if I want to have my own food and make my own food and have that sense of control over it, how, what would you recommend? I guess this is more of a selfish question. Um, but what would you recommend, um, on that sense of going about it? Well, so I think there's a few assumptions you have to make, right? So like as a student athlete, you've got classes, you've got sports, like some of the time you're being fed through the university. Some of the time, depending on if you live off on campus, off campus, access to cafeterias. Like you may be able to dictate 80 to 90% of your food. Um, whereas somebody who's on campus eating at the cafeteria can only actually, I mean, they've got what the cafeteria is producing, right? 
Um, mm-hmm. And so I think for athletes that are living off campus kind of on their own, um, that starts to become a, it starts to become hard, especially from a budget perspective. Um, but I think the first thing that you need to look at is again, like, are there ways that we can just create bulk meals that could be crock pot recipes? I mean, one of the easiest ways you can, things you can do as a student athlete living off campus is learn how to use a crock pot. Like we were snowboarding in steamboat the other week and it took me 20 minutes to prep a crock pot and we got back and it fed four of us. Um, like we just set it, forgot about it when we were done snowboarding and we got back like 10 hours later, we had a crock pot waiting for us. Um, like there's tens of thousands of crock pot recipes that you can use to kind of help you eat whole food. So rather than eating like a frozen mashed potato and meat meal that you could buy at the grocery store for $5, well, go buy some meat, um, potatoes, whatever else you want to throw in there and make a crock pot recipe. And you're going to have more food on a, and it's going to cost you less per ounce. than if you were to buy that frozen meal and the effort to go into it really isn't that much. Um, Mm -hmm. I think crock pots are a great one for college students to learn how to use because Mm -hmm. there's tens of thousands of recipes out there where you can put it in for, and forget about it. Um, and I mean, the other one too, is like, if you're going to buy, like, like if you're going to go out to eat and buy something, like a lot of times the vegetables and things can be super spendy. We'll go ahead and buy that meat and then go ahead and cook those vegetables at home. Like you could do sauteed spinach. You could do a crap ton of roasted vegetables. Um, I mean, anything that you can just kind of cut, chop, and then forget about is going to be the great, is going to be a great way. The other thing that I recommend for a college student, honestly, is just invest in one nice knife per household. Like a lot of you guys use crappy, horrible knives that don't cut crap. And just having one knife that can actually cut stuff will make a world of a difference for any of you. Um, that's just a side tip, but I think, yeah, I just want to, sorry. I just want to come in here a little bit. That's on that side point. I worked, uh, at Cutco, Cutco knives, if you've ever heard of them. Mm-hmm. And I want a free set or from you know sales or whatever. So we we got we got great knives over at our apartment. Us and the roommates, uh, we're gonna be chopping up pretty good, and we'll uh, we'll have to invest in this crock pot and go through that sense. <laughs> but yeah, the knife the knife makes a huge difference. It's like if yeah. I want to cut with a crappy knife, well, I might as well just cut my finger off at that point. Uh, <laughs> but no, I mean the crock pot's great. I think the other thing too, like. As a college student, like, look for those buy one, get one free deals. Like, you, I mean, even, like, spinach or things like that, like, they're going to have stuff that's going to be deals um, and stock up on that stuff. I mean, the other thing, too, that you can do is, like, if you just have some downtime, like, just chop up some onions, chop up some other vegetables, throw them in the freezer, chop up peppers, throw them in the freezer. Um, super easy to just freeze and then throw in and saute. Like if you're going to make like hamburger fajitas or whatever you want, you can unfreeze those by just simply putting them in a pan and going um, rather Mm -hmm. than buying like frozen dinners. I think one of the big culprits is frozen dinners for college students. Um, And I think part of it too, is a lot of kids don't know how to cook. Um, They don't know how to cook. They don't know how to prep stuff. They don't know how to make things taste good. Um, And so that's what I have found to be honestly the hardest part for a lot of you college students is the fact that none of you know how to cook. Um, (laughs) Not a fault of your own, own, but it does make a world of a difference, right? So if there's things that you can control, like making crock pot recipes where it's minimal effort with high output, well, why wouldn't you start there? Um, so start with basic things, start with figuring out what kind of makes sense for your cooking ability and what you like, and then go from there. Um, it's hard to give specific tips because there is, I mean, there's just so many variables to go, but I think those ones are, those ones are easier. Um, but yeah, I think the biggest variable is actually if kids know how to cook or not. Mm. Yeah. Huge. Um, so kind of recap before we kind of like 
segue out of here on this point, but from a broad sense, you know, stay away from kind of the, and re- I think really the, the idea, the concept, I think that you share very well is to, to kind of take initiative and be aware of what you're consuming and think intentionally with, okay, how do I ultimately, if I want to feel good, make the choices and decisions now kind of on the front end and see where those, you know, now positive ripple effects can take me. Um, and just, again, being aware of like, what am I consuming? When should I consume it? And all these different modalities. Um, one thing that I just want to hit on um, before we kind of sign off here. So I know you're a nutrition expert, um, and I kind of pair this up with hydration and nutrition. Do you know, I don't even know, I'm going to ask, maybe maybe this isn't um, the right way to ask it, but like for hydration's sake, um, if you have any knowledge that you want to share on that, the things I've been exposed to or that I've kind of listened to and kind of do is um, Himalayan sea salt with the water, add a lemon, that type of deal. Um, drink that right away in the morning because, you know, you've just gone the last eight, nine hours sleeping. You haven't, you know, you're dehydrated. Um, try to get it, to, you know, mimic nature, all these different um, deals. Is there anything that you're kind of, that you've been exposed to or that you um, kind of know and want to share about that piece? Yeah. So, I, I mean, when it comes to hydration in the world of athletics, I mean, the number, the number one and number two companies are Gator and Powerade, right? Like, Mm-hmm. You're, you're essentially brainwashed as a kid to think like, oh, every time I exercise, I need to drink a Gatorade or I need to drink a Powerade. Um, well, what we know is that like, there's a reason why these drinks were developed and we're kind of getting out of the purpose for why they were developed. Like they were developed to help you replenish vitamins and minerals from extreme exertional exercise um, specifically being when you're in areas of hot environments or long endurance type races, right? So if you think about how the body operates, um, your body prefers sugar as an energy source. So like if I drink Gatorade, my body goes, okay, I'm going to readily consume that sugar. Well, if I'm not actually exercising at a rate where I'm burning that sugar, all I'm going to do is store that sugar as excess fat. It doesn't matter. Like if you're playing baseball, like you're not really burning that many calories in a game. Um, whereas like if you were doing baseball practice, running around, um, or if you were doing say like an ultra marathon, well, your body as an ultra marathoner is burning a crap ton of calories and it needs a lot of energy. And the easiest way to get energy to your body is that sugar. So like Gatorade for an ultra endurance athlete is great because it's just simple sugar that your body's using as energy. Whereas for a baseball player, you're never actually getting into the point where you're depleting glycogen storage. As a baseball player, you're never actually really accessing or or depleting your glycogen storage. So like your need to replenish on a regular basis with say like Gatorade doesn't happen unless you're in a super humid, hot environment where you're sweating everything out. Um, Now the problem is, is like sugar, right? Like sugar directly impacts our ability to digest other vitamins and minerals, um, which that's what that sweat is. So like you'd be better off say like on a hot Atlanta day to drink water with lemon and salt in it because you're not, you don't need that sugar because you're not actually burning the sugar. You're just getting rid of all those vitamins and minerals in your body. And we can replenish those without needing the extra sugar. Um, Mm. now when it comes to like a hydration schedule, I mean, you tapped on, you touched on it perfectly is like the idea is that you want to get some sort of salt or lemon in your body right away so that you can get some hydration going right in the morning. Um, like if you think about your activity level, I mean, you could be, there's so many, like so many recipes out there for making your own electrolyte drink that doesn't include all the sugar that like Gatorade includes. Um, and I think that's so athlete dependent on like what your sport is. Like even with football, I mean, I didn't, we're technically playing like 11 minutes per game. Yeah. Like, it's not like I'm running for two hours or more at a time. I mean, it's like 11 minutes. 
So we are high exertional, uh, but I don't need to replenish my glycogen storages. I might need to replenish some of the vitamins and minerals. Um, so it's looking at like what things can I take that'll help me in that. So I think we've gotten away from like, okay, how do I use these things? So just like they're just being pushed on us. Like Gatorade is sold to kids like it is candy. Um, and so for us to know what my activity level is, what my demands are, and if I'm actually going to end up reaching the need for replenishing glycogen storage during my exercise, well, then Gatorade might be a great one. Otherwise, look at other things like just adding salt and lemon to your water, and you're going to be far better off and feel better and less sluggish throughout your performance. Mm. And there's, I mean, there's electrolyte drinks like Limit out there. Um, there's a, I can't remember the other brand. Um, but there's some that are coming out there without the added BS ingredients, without the sugar, um, that are purely for electrolyte drink, like electrolytes that don't have that high sugar content, which mm -hmm. is what most people would be looking for in like a 30 to 90 minute workout anyways. So, yeah, like, uh, I think it's called element, um, yeah, element. Where, where it's like magnesium, potassium, sodium. I know they have them at Embrace, um, like with yeah. your, when you're done with the sauna, or et cetera, when you're trying yeah. to replenish that. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's big um, of getting those that understanding of like just don't be pushed on with these different ideas. Like then question it and then kind of lean into what do I want and how do I want to go about it. Um, is there anything that? Yeah. No, I mean that's the, that's the big thing is like understanding why these products were made, right? Mm -hmm. If we understand why Gatorade was made um, and the purpose for it, well, then we can understand its uses. But I think we just have kind of like Gatorade has done a great marketing work of just like saying every athlete needs to drink Gatorade. Well, that's just not true. Um, it's just not true at all. Like you might just be better off literally buying a lemon and putting in your water with salt and that's all you need to do. Mm -hmm. um, so I think. I think the biggest tip that I can say is like, understand why a product was made before you just use it um, and see if it applies to your situation or not. Right. Yeah, that's, uh, that's well said. Um, I'm not going to add anything more to that point. Um, is there anything else that you want to share? Um, any tips or any advice before we sign off here? I think we we've hit on a lot of different areas, a lot of key key points, things that are within our influence, within our control. And I think uh, that's pretty powerful. I mean, I think the only thing that I can say, especially for like the younger athletes out there, like one of the hardest things, like when you talk to somebody like me or some of my friends who are now ex-college athletes, ex-professional athletes, like you get into this mindset of like, I need to eat to perform. And you build this habit over a period of five, 10, 15 years, depending on how long you play a sport, depending on what needs you are. Like I was in football, so I needed to bulk, right? Like I needed to eat a lot of food. And so my food habits post football were actually quite poor. Like I would think I would need to eat more than I actually did based on what my lifestyle was at that point in time. And I think for a lot of us, it becomes hard because that's a habit built into us where we're not really paying attention to it. And what we see later in life is that there's a lack of awareness around our food choices and our food behavior. So that could be overeating, that could be um, the food choices we're making. Like if I have a bulk mindset, that's gonna be completely different than just like a maintenance mindset. Um, and so I think the biggest thing that I can say to college athletes specifically is like, learn and understand your hunger cues, like know when you're hungry. That means slowing down your eating. That means taking portion at a time. Like if you take one portion, wait 10 minutes, have a conversation, like slow down a bit. And then if you're still hungry, then go get more. Um, mm -hmm. But start to know your food patterns so that you're not overeating. Um, you're not just creating havoc on your system that ends up forming have poor habits later in life that are honestly super hard to correct. Like a lot of the stuff that I do with clients, it's honestly not like, oh, can I eat more healthier food? It's like, well, how do I just change my food behavior or my food habits more so than like, let me learn how to cook X, Y, and Z recipe. Because at the end of the day, you're just as good as your habits. Um, and I think that's just one thing to pay attention to 
as a college athlete, um, because athletics is important, but also like your behavior and your mindset around food is even more important for post athletics. Yeah, that's uh, thank you for sharing that because I think that's a very powerful point, the longevity sake of things as well. Because you can get this mindset of like, I, I'm just for this, you know, four year window or whatever you want to look at the short term, but it's really the again, the habits, and that's the whole thing of like the the paradigm shift of like okay my environment forms my thinking my thinking turns into what i say what i say is what i do what i do habitually become my habits and my habits become my identity of who i am so it's like if i want to change who i am then i have to go back to these foundational things become aware of those and then ultimately make the choices and decisions uh that follow suit um but yeah that uh, that's awesome i i i want to say i appreciate your time coming on um we're going to wrap up here but um, hydration, nutrition, it's important. There's so many different modalities to it. Um, and Matt, thank you. Thank you for hopping on and sharing, um, some of your, uh, your wise words and, uh, ed education with this. So thank you. No problem. It was a pleasure to be on. Awesome. All right. Cheers.